pray that you are good, that you're loving, you're holy, you're sovereign. We're so glad to be here in this place and be reminded of these truths that we're prone to forget through the week. And Lord, I ask that you would grant me the ability to communicate what you would have for us today. Help me to get out of the way that your word might be heard, not only heard, but applied into every life. And as hearers, as listeners, we're going to be listening to your word by your spirit speaking to us. We're open. We are humble before you because we want to know more of your great love for us that we've sung about this morning. And when we can't see your hand, we want to trust your heart. So teach us to trust you through the most challenging moments of life. And I pray for those who are here today going through acute grief and loss, all of us in varying degrees, but I pray that you would speak and comfort us today. By the power of your word, do what you alone can do. Speak to us, your children, for we are listening. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen and amen. It's so good to see you this morning. We're in the, yes, the nice comfort of our sanctuary, grateful for the rain. I trust that you are ready to hear from the Word of God. You can turn, in fact, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. While you're turning there, Time Magazine recently published a special report. Uh, It was entitled, The Science of Happiness. Basically, a, a massive report, a survey of study research done, essentially exploring the question, what makes us happy? We've been asking that question over the past couple of weeks now. We've started a new series that we've uh, kind of entitled that, Smiley Face, uh, Happy People. And so we're talking about what makes us happy. The study begins with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, who is the one who said, most folks are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. So happiness begins in the mind with right understanding. Research reveals that Americans are among the most happy people on the planet. Now, maybe we wouldn't be surprised by that, but we're not at the top. We're behind uh, the Nordic countries in Europe, uh, Finland, Sweden, Norway. We're behind the Oceanic countries, uh, Australia. Who wouldn't want to live in Australia? Uh, New Zealand. Um, The Fiji Islands are happier than Americans, according to the research done. Uh, 15% currently of Americans are not happy at all. They had varying, uh, you know, degrees of happiness. 55% are pretty happy. And then 30% are very happy. I wonder where you would place yourself in that kind of research. How would you mark that survey? Would you say that you're very happy? Or would people around you say, that person is very happy? Well, it goes on. Among those who are, are working, they tossed retired people in there. thought it was interesting. But retired people are among the happiest. 38% who are not working are the happiest among the workforce, uh, while 33% of working people are happy. Now, money can't buy happiness except to a point. It actually reveals that people who have the ability to do certain things with their money Uh, As incomes rise, happiness rises, but only to a point. In fact, the research reveals that right about $70,000 a year, people make $70,000, $75,000 a year. uh, Happiness, they seek happiness, it increases until you get to that point, and it doesn't increase any further. How about that? Uh, It also noted that those who spend money 
uh, simply on material things. It doesn't produce happiness for the long haul. You know this. But those who spent money on things that would save time uh, have this sense of greater well-being. Republicans are 40% very happy, happier than Democrats, by the way, who are 31% very happy. Now, don't send me emails. Not a political statement. I'm just... I'm just stating the facts, and the more conservative you are, the happier you are. How about that? Interesting. Youth is overrated, as senior adults are 38% very happy, while 27%, 18 to 24-year-olds, are happy, very happy. How about that? And I find this interesting. 41% of all people who go to a religious service a week, primarily church service a week, 41%, one of the highest uh, categories in all the research done. Very happy. Up against 32% who go a month or so, I mean once a month, down to 28% who seldom or never go to church. So there you have it. Research tells you that you are happier if you come to church every week. I'll see you next week. <laughs> Let's keep on coming. That's why many of you are very happy. I see our regular people who are they're happy. Some of you, once a month, are not, not so happy. I mean, you're happy, but not as happy as others. Listen, resilient people are happy, you might guess. Generous people are happy people. But all this research made me wonder, with all of it, and there's much more. I read the entire, uh, the retire, uh, retire, uh, entire report. But what, what it did, I, wonder, I wondered, it, it created this question to me, what... How are we defining happiness here? Because if our definition of happiness is off, then all of this research might lead to nothing, right? If, if, your, if your description or definition of happiness in the end is off, then all of the research really doesn't add up. Uh, you got the wrong question, maybe for the wrong answer. What if we don't know what true happiness really is? What if we're given to ourselves thinking of what happiness is? Uh, what, if, what if true happiness is actually something else altogether and Jesus enters into our wondering and he speaks? The Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at this statement, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy people are needy people, we said. Jesus seems to indicate that those who have no real reason to be happy are actually happy. Something is off here. Our understanding of happiness does not match up with the way of Jesus, and very few of us are willing to come to grips with the fact that the way of Jesus is actually what life is all about. The Beatitudes are difficult to reckon with. Happy people are needy people. What if... Our needs, even our sadness, our loss, our grief, is actually designed to draw us to the one, to the only one who is the source of true happiness. Surely it's true. What J.N. Darby, the Puritan pastor, theologian from the 1800s, he said, necessity finds him out. Only in our need for Him, do we come to Him? Could it be that the neediest among us 
are those who actually discover true happiness. And you see the challenge, do you not? Particularly in an affluent, self-reliant, self-sufficient culture, many of us and many people outside this room and, and out into our city and some of us never really sense this great need for God unless we enter into, enter into loss of some form and loss always brings about grief. And so today we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Truly happy people are not only those who are needy people. Jesus goes further. He says that needy people are happy, but those who've experienced great loss and great grief, is what this means, are actually happy people. Now, we talked about it last week, this, this word blessed, it's hard to translate. It's actually an enviable position. We translate it happy or blessed. But it's one who we would look at and say, that is a person who is blessed by God and I want to be like them. Now, you might say even there, I'm not sure I want to be like someone who grieves today. Someone who mourns, someone who's experiencing loss, I wouldn't say that I just want to be just like them. So what does all this mean? Here in the first part of Matthew 5, verses 2 through 12, we see the Beatitudes. It comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed or happy. Again, that word that's difficult to translate. Each one begins with this, blessed are they, right? So we're going to talk about happy people in these days and again today. This verse generates a lot of questions as I wrestled with how to break this down how to outline it I just thought well let's just answer the questions that come into our minds first what is true happiness we've alluded to that a little bit I want to answer these questions who are the mourners am I one of them why do they grieve how can they be happy how will they be comforted so let's look at the first question what is true happiness we must answer this one because, again, Jesus, his description of those who are happy clearly doesn't match ours. He describes people who have seemingly no reason to be happy at all, and yet he says they're happy. It seems that Jesus is saying that happiness comes from some other place than we often look. Now, the Bible would, would tell us this over and over again, and here's what I want to begin with. This helps our understanding of the Beatitudes and really the Sermon on the Mount. True happiness comes from a right relationship with God. Apart from a right relationship with God, we cannot be happy. He's the source of our happiness. He's the one who's created us. Happy people are those who have a dynamic relationship with God. So the Beatitudes, Jesus, His life and teaching point us to this. Instead, most people believe that happiness is found in some pursuit of pleasure. And by the way, the paradox of hedonism it's called. And this, is not a, this is not a biblical thing, though it is. It's not a, it's not a theological thing. It's a, it's a philosophical thing. The paradox of hedonism. It, it's stated that the actual pursuit of pleasure actually stands in the way of experiencing pleasure. The paradox is that we think that in this thing we're pursuing, we will find pleasure and happiness. When in reality, it's found in pursuing something else. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. 
Happiness is found in pursuing something else. The pursuit of pleasure actually interferes with pleasure itself. And what we're going to see here today is it's actually by pursuing something else. And how about this? Someone else. We're going to discover where the comfort comes from. It's the object of our pursuit that actually brings about true happiness, and it's found in a right relationship with God. Jesus is saying those who have a right relationship with God, well, they find themselves with these qualities in this position. So look at this. Who are the mourners? The mourners are those who have experienced great loss, essentially. This is what it means. Uh, Isaiah 61, verse 2, gives us a clue. Uh, This is where the prophet is pointing to the Messiah to come. Jesus actually quotes this passage out of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 when he begins his ministry. In the inauguration of his ministry, he says, you might remember this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading the text. And then it goes on to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And then Jesus finishes this passage. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to bring hope to those who are broken. He's going to heal those who are in need of healing. He's going to set us free. He's going to liberate us from our sin. And then he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in its reading right now through the one who speaks these words. You see, the Messiah was known as the great comforter to come. It's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, you might remember from the Christmas story, Simeon is an older man, and he says to, to the holy family, he says, I've been waiting for the comforting of Israel to come. And he's come in the Messiah. The Messiah was the one who was to bring comfort to the people. So, who are the mourners? Well, I like Archibald M. Hunter's definition, or his answer to the question, uh, a pattern for life. He wrote this exposition on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. You can see it there. The mourners are the ones to whom the evil of this world is a continual grief. Those who mourn the perpetual grief of the apparent eclipse of God's people, the apparent eclipse of God's people and cause, and long for a Savior to rise upon the earth. You know this is true. Prior to coming to Christ, the world wrecks you because you think that in it you're going to find happiness. You're going to find meaning and purpose, and you don't. And then after you come to Christ, the world wrecks you because you see that it is broken and in need of redemption and will never provide ultimate happiness. But that realization by the Spirit's revelation turns us to God, the one who is the source of all happiness, propels us into true happiness. You know, for those of us who understand and believe the biblical account of history, we know what is wrong with the world. We grieve the loss of a former relationship with God, an intimate communion with God in the garden, His rule and reign over creation, And through the fall and through our personal sin, we grieve this loss. It's what Paul refers to in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 22 through 23, where he says that all creation is subject to this frustration, this loss, this grief. 
He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. So we wait, he says. We wait patiently with hope. But this term to mourn, it means to experience deep loss. And again, loss always brings about grief. So why do they grieve? Why do we grieve? And what have we lost? Well, first, we grieve because of the loss of a former communion with God. You can see it there. This grief is ever before us. We confess our sin. And we repent and we turn back to Him. But our sin is ever before us. And there's a deep sense within all of us. I think everyone on the planet, something is wrong. I talk to people who don't believe in God, those who are atheists or those who struggle to believe in God. And they often will first point out, look at all the injustice in the world. Look at everything that's wrong. How can a loving God, right, do this or this or this? How can He allow this? So we all begin at the same point. Something is wrong with the world. Those of us who know Scripture, who know God, we know what is wrong. And we grieve, but it makes sense to us. We grieve because we know that the world is not as it should be. And this leads us to action. This is what separates God's people from others. Listen, Christians have been the ones more than anyone on the planet throughout all of history, the most influential people on earth in regard to caring for the poor, facing injustices, coming up against racial injustice and social justice, the marginalized, those who are in need, establishing hospitals, teaching people how to read the, 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 the language of their people in order to read, ultimately in order to read the Bible. Believers across history have done more to change the world than anyone else because we grieve the world as it is, but we know as as the Lord has called us, what it can be. It, this is what it means that, that, his, that heaven would come to earth, that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the here and now. And as believers, we're called to action. It's why, listen, this Wednesday night, you see it in your bulletin, you can come and join us for an incredible event of great joy as we get to serve those who aren't prepared for school, children who don't have what they need to have primarily in the Vickery area here in our city. Immigrants and refugees and many who don't have the ability to prepare for the upcoming school year. We have the opportunity to do that. You can see the information there. Come and join us on Wednesday night. It's why, as, as Rodney noted, it's why we go tell the world of the gospel and we go to serve people, often meeting needs, showing compassion that leads us to share the gospel. We've been doing it all summer long we grieve because we are not yet who we will be and we know it it's coming it's why uh the, this interim time here the already but not yet it's why many theologians have called uh the beatitudes the sermon on the mount as the interval ethic we live in this alternative kingdom known as the people of god the church 
but we live in the world. It's a, it's a colony of, of love and light in a nation of death and darkness. And we show the world what it is to live in this alternative kingdom. And it happens as we follow the way of Jesus. But listen, it's not a kind of Christian Gnosticism. It's not just right thinking, a worldview, all at a distance, but not lived out in real life. It's lived out because we know what it is to turn to the Lord. So look at this. How can they be happy? We grieve because we recognize what's happening in the world, but how can we, how can the mourner be happy? Look again, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Look at this. Comfort is the bridge from grief to happiness. And what I want you to see, ultimately, Jesus is going to show us comfort it's not simply a state of mind. It's not simply a, a place of the heart. Comfort is found in a person. The coming Messiah was known as the great comforter. Jesus has come, and now he calls us to himself. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we learn to mourn over our sin, we discover God's forgiveness. And let me just speak to this for a moment. It's one thing to grieve loss. To suffer loss and, and, to, and to be sad and to grieve and yet turn to the Lord. But I want to talk for a moment about this grief that comes through personal sin. Because we all have a sense of this, this thing in the world that, that, that is dark and keeping us down. We grieve a former communion with God and yet Christ has come to establish that again. And if you don't know the Lord today, if you've never received His grace or you have questions about that, we want to talk to you after this service. But let me encourage you. Comfort comes when you turn to the Lord. When you realize that there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you have to come to Him to be forgiven. He alone has gone to the cross for you. He alone has taken on your shame, your sin. He alone has paid the price for your sin. So through confession of personal sin, we're brought into an intimate relationship with Him. And this is true at the point of salvation. It's true throughout our Christian lives that we continue to turn to Him and we find comfort in Him. But first, it begins with a right relationship with God. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 7. You can see it on the screen there. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, worldly grief is this kind of sense that something is wrong. I feel bad about what I've done, even. But that doesn't produce any kind of movement towards the source of our ultimate forgiveness and happiness. Instead, it's godly grief, he says. It's grief, true grief, that leads to repentance. You say, well, how would I know? It's when you understand that God is the one who brings comfort and healing and forgiveness, and so you turn to Him. There's this kind of grief, a conviction of the Spirit that brings about happiness yet again before our God. Now, our relationship with Him doesn't change. It's been established by Christ when you receive His grace, but our fellowship with Him does, and it's through confession of sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. It was his first of the 95 theses. 
all of the Christian life is one of repentance. We continue to come back to him. And he releases us from this sense of grief that is ever before us because we're forgiven and we can experience the grace of God. So look at this. How will they then be comforted? How can we experience this comfort? We are comforted when we turn to the source of our comfort. What if God's purpose all along is that it is through our suffering and through loss and grief that we actually are turning to Him in order to experience His presence, which ultimately leads to ultimate happiness in life. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching us. So get back to our premise. True happiness comes from a right relationship with God. This is where we find happiness. So the recognition of our need for God is the beginning of it all. Surely Jay and Darby was right. Necessity finds him out. This is true, again, at the point of salvation, and it's true every day of our lives. Let me ask you, do you turn to him? Do you turn to him every day? Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple, then you need to deny yourself and all of your worldly pursuits. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow him. That's where happiness is found. So I want us to apply this message as I land it here. What loss is bringing grief into your heart and life in these days? I want you to think about that for a moment. Let the Spirit of God speak into your heart. This is a tender moment for some of us. Because some of you have experienced a grief that is not new. It's been a long time. You've experienced loss maybe many years ago. Maybe it was the loss of a family member. I know many of you who've lost loved ones. And some years ago. And others of us have lost perhaps our health, maybe even in recent years, recent days. We're just, you know, growing older can bring grief. Some of our young moms are going to experience a particular grief sending a child off to first grade this next week or so. I remember being in the school, elementary school, it was the moms who were crying when the children were sent off. Not all, some are joyful and happy for some reason. (laughs) That'll be the case. Perhaps it's the loss of a particular season of your life. Maybe a place or a moment. Maybe it's a position, a job. You found your identity in being that person and you're no longer that person, but you know what's happened. The Lord is saying, no, 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 come to me. Ultimately, your worth was found in me all along. I'm the one who brings ultimate happiness. But listen, for many in our church family today, this grief is acute. And it is overwhelming at times. Many of you know that we've had a week of great loss here in our church family. Those of you who are guests wouldn't know this. But just this week alone, you've seen in the bulletin there, Miss Martha Howard uh, passed away. Martha lived to be 99 years of age. A beautiful, amazing life. She was such a blessing to every one of us who knew her and those of us who didn't know her as well. You were inspired by her life as you came to know. Her service today is at 5 o'clock and I'd encourage you to come and grieve and celebrate with the family. 
Stacy and I were so blessed. Our family was blessed by Miss Howard. Every encounter we had with her, every moment she was encouraging us and blessing us and really understanding the role of the pastor's wife more than anyone else could possibly know. Always encouraging me as her pastor, and I'm going to miss her a lot. Every pastor, I say it often, needs someone like Martha Howard. Someone who just loves them for free, without condition. That's why we loved her so much. One of our former pastor's wives, Deb Sutton, who was former chairman, chairperson of our deacons, she uh, lost her mom, Marie Etheridge, this week. Some of you may know that Jewel Cantrell passed away. Betty Dilday, Dr. Russell Dilday's wife, passed away. And as we talk to each one of these, they are experiencing great grief and loss. How can this verse make sense? Well, we've seen a bit of it today. It doesn't say that we don't just have days where we just try to make it one moment at a time. Sometimes all you can do is just press on from one hour to the next, one day at a time. But we experience grief, real grief here in this life and in our church. And I praise God for the ministry that so many of you bring to those who are in need of comfort and care. I give our church high marks in this area, caring for one another, loving each other. I'm seeing it even today. And we're going to see it over the next few days as we celebrate the homegoing of these precious women. But one who walks alongside people with grief constantly is Dr. Jack Martin. He serves as our minister of pastoral care. We thought it'd be interesting to ask Jack what he has learned, what he has seen from people who are suffering grief. Such a valuable member of our staff team. And many of you have been blessed by his presence and his ministry among us. So I want you to watch this as Jack shares with us a bit of what he's learned about grief. very little to offer. When somebody's going through a loss, you can say, hey, I know what that's like. I've been comforted myself. Let me share with you. A sadist. But I think we get the idea that we can just sit down with our Bibles and we can understand God. The way it works is we walk through life and we have his word and we, and we read truths from his word, but we we don't understand those truths until we go through things that are really rough. And the people that do that, the people that go through the rough things, they develop a track record with God. But the people that wrestle with God, that, that get down in the trenches with Him, and He gets down there with us. The people that call out to God and say, I am in agony. I am in pain. I don't know what to do. I don't even know if I can live to tomorrow. Uh, and they see God at that point come into their lives. They have a totally, totally different understanding of God at that point. They read scripture differently. They understand his love. 
his care, his compassion. I ask, um, in grief share, I go around and I say, are you closer to God now or are you further away from God after the grief, after having lost a loved one? And to a person, it's not a flippant answer, but to a person, they'll say to me, I'm much closer to God because we can't be closer to God until we walk with Him, until we allow Him to walk with us through terrible times, through this life that we live. Mm. So grateful for Dr. Martin and his ministry among us. We often say over a, a graveside or in a funeral, a remembrance, we often say that grief is the price we pay for love when we lose a loved one. But wouldn't we rather love wouldn't we rather risk that kind of grief and loss by loving well? This is what Jesus taught us. And when we experience loss, we're humbled. In those rare moments, we find ourselves on our back. And we're reminded what the Bible says in Psalm 48, verse 10. It says, be still and know that I'm God. Some of us are still only when we walk through seasons of darkness and loss. I love what Luke chapter 6, 21 says. Luke offers this same beatitude this way. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. People say to me, Jeff, how, I, I hear this all the time, how do people make it apart from God being there in their lives? My answer is always the same. They don't make it. What I mean is this, God didn't just say, I'm going to let you just live one more day, one more day. Now we go through seasons like that, but he's caused us and called us to prevail, not simply to sustain or just make it, but to prevail through challenging times. In fact, Psalm 30 verse 11 and 12 says, he will turn our mourning into dancing, our sackcloth into clothes of gladness, that we may sing his praise and not be silent. And give thanks to him in all things because he's God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. I want to land with one final purpose in our grief. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Friends, listen, we've all experienced loss and grief. And there's a purpose behind it that relates to others. We can come alongside those who are grieving because, you see, empathy really is the pathway to comforting others. You know, it's one thing for me to sit with people who've gone through so much grief and much more than I've gone through. And I can bring truth and comfort and presence. I can pray with them. But when, when, I, when I put them alongside someone who has walked through the same thing that they've gone through, that is the moment that brings validation that brings understanding and comfort in ways that I could not offer 
That's you. Notice he says, in any affliction. See, this is the body of Christ. This is the church at its best. When we come alongside people who have walked, who are walking through what we have gone through, we just provide the ministry of presence. You don't have to know all that needs to be said. You can just be there, having walked through what they walked through. But friends, I want you to hear this as we close. God comforts us in our present grief. And He will bring comfort in the future. And this future glory, this hope that we have, changes everything in the present. It allows us to prevail. It allows us to continue to praise Him. It allows us to continue to walk together. And I want to challenge you, if you're here today, you've never received Christ, today is your day. That's why you've come. If you've not become a member of our church, and maybe you've been coming or you're praying through that, today is your day. Listen, I would say it this way. You can't be happy alone. There's no way. You were not created to live that way. You need the church. You need the body of Christ because comfort and peace comes among God's people as we point one another to Him. And as we do, as we turn to Him, friend, you will discover this amazing truth that grieving people are happy people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word today. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your teaching, for your guidance, for your present Holy Spirit, your presence among us that brings comfort and understanding to these challenging teachings that run counter to the world. So Lord, thank you for the reminder of this alternative kingdom, the way that you've called us to live, and may we find ourselves there today by faith, And for those who have never received your grace, may they do so even now. Friend, just ask Christ to forgive you. He's already done all that's necessary. Receive his grace. And others of us, if you need to join the fellowship of the church, let it be today. Don't tarry. If you need to be baptized, to proclaim that you have entered into grief and you have found comfort in the forgiveness of Christ and proclaim it to the world, Let it be a moment of decision. We thank you, Jesus, for the firm foundation that is ours in you. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. We thought it'd be appropriate to close our time with a song that really is a proclamation. It's a moment of commitment, but it's also a time to just say, yes, we believe this is true. And so what I want us to do is to stand together and we're going to sing. You'll find it there. Stephen's going to lead us. How firm a foundation. Let's all stand together as we sing to the Lord right now. Just proclaim it to Him. Join with me.